Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, a complimentary resource for those on the road to recovery. I'm Mickey Trescott, a nutritional therapy practitioner living well with autoimmune disease in Oregon. I've got both Hashimoto's and celiac disease. And I'm Angie Alt, a certified health coach and nutritional therapy consultant, also living well with autoimmune disease in Maryland. I have endometriosis, lichen sclerosis, and celiac disease. After recovering our health by combining the best of conventional medicine with effective and natural dietary and lifestyle interventions, Mickey and I started blogging at autoimmune-paleo.com, where our collective mission is seeking wellness and building community. This podcast is sponsored by the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, our co-authored guide to living well with chronic illness. We saw the need for a comprehensive resource that goes beyond nutrition to connect savvy patients just like you to the resources they need to achieve vibrant health. Through the use of self-assessments, checklists, handy guides, and templates, you get to experience the joy of discovery, finding out which areas to prioritize on your healing journey. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. A quick disclaimer, the content in this podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On to the podcast. Hey everyone, this is the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, episode six. Now that we've covered the steps of informing yourself and collaborating with your healthcare practitioners, we move on to our personal favorite step in living well with autoimmune disease, nourish. Although this is the third step in our process, it's often the first action you can take to concretely begin your wellness journey. So we'd like to begin with a quote from our good friend, Sarah Ballantyne, that you should remember from a couple episodes back. She's totally rad. Um, And she says, it is not an exaggeration to say that gut health is everything. The health of your gut has a profound effect on your overall health. Embarking on the autoimmune protocol was where it all started for Angie and I, and we're super excited to talk about our personal experiences with this integral step. Right, Angie? Yeah, super excited to share with you guys. The first question a lot of people are wondering about is, how did we find this protocol? How did we get into this? Yeah, like like how the heck, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's kind of, especially when we started, right, Mick, it was kind of crazy. Like there was hardly anybody doing this. So why don't you start? Why don't you tell um, our listeners about how you even found the protocol? Yeah, so I found AIP. Um, it, it was kind of one of those things that kept coming up and I kept ignoring it. So I had been vegan for a very long time when I became sick and I know we covered this in the the first episode or one of the first episodes that we recorded, but I started to get very sick and very desperate. And when I didn't have any options in conventional medicine, I started to think, okay, maybe there's a dietary approach. And so what I was expecting to find was, you know, oh, vegan diet is great. Plant-based diet is great. You can totally do this. But what I actually found was a lot of researchers saying that almost the complete opposite was true, that grains and beans and nightshades and legumes were problematic for people with autoimmune disease. And those were basically all I was eating. So all of these foods that I was ignoring, so all these nutrient-dense foods, fish, uh, shellfish, organ meats, and even meat in general, provided the nutrients for people with autoimmune disease to heal. So I was kind of on a Google mission and 
going super deep and it popped up on Chris Kresser. He said in a podcast, oh, you know, people with autoimmune disease should do paleo, but they should also remove these foods. And then I came across Dr. Karazian, who's a functional medicine specialist. And he was saying, oh, for autoimmune hypothyroid patients, they should do this elimination diet. And it was shockingly similar to what Chris Kresser said. And then I found Rob Wolf and Rob Wolf said it too. And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I think I'm going to have to do uh, a pretty strict evaluation of what I'm eating. And when I started researching it, the science was kind of there. Right. So, you know, I began the process of transitioning very slowly from that vegan diet and started incorporating meat. And then I got the personal experience that even just the meat made me feel better. So I realized that I needed to put faith in something a little different and and try something new. You were convinced. Yeah. What about you, Angie? How'd you find it? Well, I came from a totally different background, totally opposite. I had never been vegan or vegetarian in my life. I had always been a meat eater, um, an omnivore. But what I didn't have any experience with was that you could have diseases that were affected by what you ate. And I got diagnosed as a celiac and it came into my thinking for the first time ever that the foods I was eating could be driving disease. And I was really desperate to try to reverse things as quickly as possible because I was so, so kind of at this really, really just low desperate point um, with the celiac disease. And I started asking some friends for ideas about what I could do. And it kind of seemed like maybe what I should do is focus on a plant-based diet. And I was like kind of dreading and thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to have to like become a vegetarian. (laughs) And a friend of mine had been having conversations with a friend of hers. And that woman's name was Annie. And Annie reached out to me and said that I should look into something called lectins that were in grains. And that one word got me started on this whole like burning down the internet, Google searches, which led me to paleo. And I found Rob Wolf's book, The Paleo Solution. So I went and bought Rob's book. And I started implementing paleo, but I was still like Googling like crazy. And within a week, I came across Sarah's site, The Paleo Mom, and I saw more information there about the autoimmune protocol and taking it a step further. And as soon as I started reading it, I knew that those further steps applied to me and I made the switch. And when you say reading it, back then, I think Sarah had like, you know, two paragraphs of a blog post, right? You know, it was not like we talk about it as like her, you know, 600 page book right right now. But back then, Rob Wolf's book, it was like a sentence as like an aside, right? Uh, Chris Kresser mentioned it once on a podcast, Dr. Karazian mentioned it in a sentence in his book. So we were really trying to read between the lines (laughs) back then. Right. The the details uh, were nowhere near as fleshed out the resources and the whole community that goes with it, you know, the the AIP cookbooks and the AIP podcasts and the... When I thought about writing an AIP cookbook, Angie, my first thought was, who is going to ever read this? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So yeah. A lot has changed. (laughs) Yes, very much. There was hardly anything out there. So I was really going off of like really just small threads of information, but the science was clear, even in those threads of information and who it applied to was clear. And I knew that I was one of those people. Yeah. So let's kind of move on a little bit 
maybe we can talk about how sometimes when people try different diets before landing on the thing that works, it, it can be like a little bit confusing. What was your diet like before you found AIP? Yeah, so I was vegan for 10 years before I, I found the autoimmune protocol or even paleo. And what was interesting about how I felt back then was I thought I was invincible, right? Because we get all this messaging from our culture now that low-fat plant-based diets are very fashionable and they're highly encouraged by the medical profession. So I thought that I was avoiding all the diseases, cancer, everything. I, I just really thought that nothing bad would ever happen to me because I ate this perfect diet. And then when I got sick and I went to my doctors and they all said, oh, your diet's great. We don't, it has nothing to do with it. It's your genetics. Um, that, that raised kind of a big red flag for me because I was like, wait, I've been doing this for a long time. And I thought that I was avoiding everything. So before AIP, obviously, you know, I had this really dogmatic, um, pretty close-minded approach to diet. I just kind of ate my vegan food and thought as long as I didn't have any animal products, I would be fine. But then as I transitioned out of that, I went gluten-free, obviously, when I was diagnosed with celiac disease, but that's actually when I got worse. So I was gluten-free vegan, and I took out all those grains, and that was incredibly difficult. Um, and I felt my worst then. Yeah. And then I went into this period of reintroducing meat and it, that was on my way to AIP. So I actually found out about AIP, but you know, going from vegan to AIP is such a big transition. It wasn't like I could just start eating meat. That was a whole process in and of itself. Like I would have my husband cook a tiny bit of meat and he would hide it in a bunch of vegetables because I just had no palate for it. I didn't want to eat it. I it, it The smell turned me off. And once I started feeling better eating it, my uh, cravings for it grew. So that fixed itself. But there was a whole transition where I wasn't vegan. I wasn't paleo or AIP, but I was just kind of moving in that direction. And so I, I do have a big history of being on a restricted diet, which has really informed my approach now that I have, I don't even call what I eat a diet. I like to think of AIP as a template because it has informed what I eat now, which is foods that make me feel good. And it doesn't correspond to any list. It's not more restricted than it needs to be. There's no rules other than I can make any choice that I want at every any given time, but I know how a particular food affects me. And um, I am making that informed decision to eat or not eat that food. So yeah. What about you, Angie? So like I said earlier, you know, before I transitioned to AIP, I ate like a basic omnivore diet, but it was omnivore in the sense of being a fast food junkie. <laughs> so something that a lot of people don't know about me and um, people who have met me post AIP really have a hard time believing this, but my friends who knew me from before really crack up and make fun of it. Um, I was like a pretty serious junk food junkie. Like I would definitely have like cheese fries and a large coffee for breakfast at my desk. <laughs> And, you know, even though I had lived overseas, I had lived in West Africa during my sickest period, and it wasn't like I could, you know, go to the McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever while I was there. I really had to cook everything from scratch, and, and that was all okay, but I was really focused on a lot of grain products. 
kind of filling in my diet, not very much um, protein, not very much quality protein, hardly any veg, definitely not quality veg. Um, I was really lacking the nutrient density despite eating meats and, and vegetables and, and grains. There just wasn't much there for me. And then after I got diagnosed uh, with celiac disease, I tried a traditional gluten-free diet. And like you, Mickey, I got sicker actually during that period. My antibodies actually climbed higher during that time. Um, and it wasn't due to kind of the typical mistakes of an early celiac diagnosis. I wasn't confused about where gluten-containing grains might be in my food or what their names were on labels. I knew how to read that all carefully. You know, I was doing a good job being careful of cross-contamination and things like that in my diet. But all those extra grains, I just don't think we're doing me any favors. Yeah, that's a really common experience, I think, for people. Um, and a lot of people, when they're diagnosed with celiac, the doctors say, oh, but, you know, they have all these labeling and, you know, there are all these foods and you almost focus more on the processed foods you know? Right, exactly. You know, I had all the like gluten-free bars that were starting to come out then. And just think of how all the gluten-free vegan bars were, Angie. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like I really wasn't getting much helpful guidance from my doctor. Basically, I woke up from anesthesia. Uh, she had taken some biopsies of my small intestine and, and confirmed my celiac diagnosis. And she basically said, like, you have celiac disease. Go eat gluten-free and don't call me in the morning. You know, like that was it. Um, yeah. So. so Angie, when you transitioned to AIP, were you 100% all in? Like, what did your protocol actually look like? Yeah, I definitely was 100% all in. Um I was just at such a low, desperate point by then that I just really didn't have any other choice. You know, if I was really frank and honest with our listeners, I would say that by that point, I felt like if I didn't do this, I was probably going to die. Um, I was in the ER all the time. Oh, I'll try not to get emotional here. I was in the ER all the time. I was having these really um, increasingly severe allergic reactions. Some of them were like bordering on anaphylactic. Um, I got sent home with EpiPens. I remember um, one of my lowest points, they sent us with these practice EpiPens. And my husband and daughter had to sit with the nurse and pretend using the practice EpiPen to give me a shot um, in case mm -hmm. I would have a reaction. And mm -hmm. my daughter was 11. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't want this to happen and have this be on my little girl. Mm-hmm. Angie, how long did you do the elimination diet for? Um, I really focused hard for about a full year. Mm -hmm. I knew right away that it was working. Um, within six weeks, my antibody numbers had dropped by half. And by six months, I felt incredible. But you know, I was an undiagnosed celiac for at least 11 years. So I just mm -hmm. had a lot of internal healing that needed to happen. And I just stayed pretty focused and committed. Mm -hmm. How about you, Mickey? So, you know, I definitely didn't transition cold turkey per se because of the the issue with meat and being vegan. It took me, even though I, I knew that that's what I needed to do, it was very hard psychologically for me to actually just start eating meat and really transition. Right. And your digestive system probably had to catch up. Yeah, it was a pretty difficult process. So that took about six weeks to two months. And in that time, I was 
was in denial and dabbling with some foods that, you know, like nightshades, I I was growing tomatoes and I thought, tomatoes aren't a problem. I've eaten them my entire life. (laughs) Um, And and so I was kind of, you know, I knew that I was going to do the elimination diet, but I was definitely uh, just kind of biding my time. And then once I went all in, I actually didn't see results very quickly, but I did the elimination diet for about nine months. And the results that I saw were, you know, I, I might have a small change in a month, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time in bed when I was super sick and I had a lot of blood pressure issues that prevented me from doing something even like really gentle yoga or standing and unloading the dishwasher um, because of all the ups and downs. And so I remember really clearly from like that second month to that third month, I felt like I could sit up in bed and then stand up and not feel like I was going to pass out, which was kind of normal for me. Um, So the changes were really subtle in the beginning, but those were the first positive changes I had seen in almost a year. I started, um, you know, really getting into the nutrient density piece at about three months in, and that really changed things for me. But it was about nine months until I started really reintroducing foods. And I might say for people, you might be going, oh my God, nine months in a year, that's super long. And Angie and I were super sick. You know, it's really a reflection of kind of where you're starting from. And both of us literally felt like we were going to die. Like that, that was an actual concern. (laughs) Um, We were pretty far. So yeah. And that's also not to say for people listening that just like Mickey and I just described, you should be noticing positive changes in that time. Um, It's not like we just stayed, you know, white knuckle holding our breath in the elimination phase for those, you know, nine month and one year timelines um, without noticing that there were positive uh, healing progress being made. They were just very slow, you know, for us. Right. Yeah. So Let's talk about the aspects of AIP that made the biggest differences for us. Mickey, what in the process made you really like take your healing forward a few notches? So for me, the nutrient density piece, I think because I came from a vegan background, I started experiencing symptoms in addition to my autoimmune symptoms that were nutrient deficiency linked. So I had very low B12 and very low iron. Um, And even though as a vegan, I was supplementing, I was working with practitioners who were guiding me on how to not be deficient as a vegan, it still wasn't enough. And so when I started eating meat, especially red meat and then especially organ meat like liver, I really noticed um, an increase in my strength and I noticed a decrease in certain symptoms almost immediately. So the first time I ate liver, I was really impressed with how warm I felt my body temperature would go up for a couple hours and I would have a little rush of energy. And at that time, I was so fatigued and so cold that I just knew I was on the right track. So in addition to that, you know, I started eating fish and shellfish and and all of these foods, you know, meat and fish and shellfish and bone broth and organ meats are just so incredibly nutrient dense that I just felt like my body was like drinking it up. And I was, you know, really fueling myself on a level that I might never have had this kind of diet in the past. So I think that was actually the most important part for me was just getting sufficient in all those things that Mm -hmm. I'd been missing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I would say for me, not that the nutrient density piece didn't matter and that adding in those nutrient-rich foods uh, wasn't huge for me, but for me, it was more the eliminations that really made the biggest impact. I think, you know, that might be in part that I didn't come from the vegan background, so I may not have noticed, you know, the big impact of adding in those um, quality proteins that you did, you know? And I was also coming from this background of, like I said, I was eating really poor quality foods that were probably driving a lot of these um, sensitivities that I was experiencing, you know, Mm -hmm. so eliminating them was huge. Within like 72 hours, the anxiety that I had been going through was almost gone. Mm -hmm. It was just incredible. And I know that those foods were driving it. Angie, tell me about what kind of reactions you had to these eliminated foods when you started reintroducing them. So let's see, you know, The two, well, there's three foods that really stand out for me in terms of uh, the reintroduction process. So the first one was eggs. When I first tried to reintroduce them, it didn't go well at all. I remember I went and made a fried egg and some avocado and I sat down at my desk and I was eating it. And all of a sudden, I couldn't really kind of like read what was on my computer screen. I was having a hard time kind of like thinking it through to type. And I realized, oh my gosh, I've got like really bad brain fog. And I realized it was the egg. Then over the next few days, like my hands got really swollen up and it just was clear that it wasn't going to work. And after that, I realized I did some research and realized that soy in the feed of chickens can sometimes actually be the problem with eggs more than the egg itself. So the next time I tried, which was, you know, I don't know, three or four months later, at least, I tried a soy free egg and it went better. I didn't get the brain fog, but I still got some swelling in my hands. So I waited for a little bit more healing and I stuck to those soy free eggs and finally it worked. I was able to reintroduce them. I'd had enough healing and I didn't get any of the weird symptoms anymore. And now, you know, I eat eggs on occasion. The other biggie was white potatoes. So the first time that I tried to reintroduce them, I got just incredible joint pain in my hips. Like I couldn't lay on my side because my hips hurt so bad. I could hardly walk because my hips hurt so bad. And it was really clear that it was linked to the potato. And it kind of built up for the three days following eating the potato and then slowly dissipated. So then I think I waited about another six months, really focused on more healing. And then I tried it again. And that time I was successful. And now I eat white potato a couple times a week and I have no problems at all. The surprise for me is cumin. So I think a lot of people think with the seed spices, it's kind of like, oh, whatever. It's not, you know, you don't eat that much of them. It's probably not a big deal. But even still today, even after four or more years of healing, I can't tolerate cumin. If I eat cumin, I get a splitting headache within 24 hours. Yeah, I think people will be like, what? I know, it's so weird. And actually, I first figured that out when we were hanging out with Sarah. Um, I think I remember you were like, oh, cumin can't hurt. Like, why not? I'll try it. I've never reintroduced this yet. Let me give it a try. And we made a dish that had cumin in it. And the next day, I was like, you guys, my head is killing me. (laughs) Yeah. So how about you, Mickey? What was your experience like with reintroductions? Yeah, so pretty similar to yours. You know, I have a few foods that really stand out. Uh, Nightshades initially affected me the worst of anything. Grammar. Um, (laughs) 
And what would happen is, you know, I wouldn't even eat like a tomato. I would have like a little cayenne pepper or something at someone's house that was trying to be really nice and didn't understand what a nightshade was. Um, and my hands would swell up, you know, my joints, um, especially in my hands. And I, and I just had like horrible joint pain and I could just really feel them, especially when I woke up in the morning. Uh, but I really learned the level of sensitivity when, uh, as a personal chef at the time I was working, cooking for clients in their homes and I roasted a chicken and I put a little cayenne pepper on the outside. And often I would cook things for people and I don't eat the food they do. So I would use ingredients that I wasn't personally eating, but I rubbed this cayenne pepper in a rub on the chicken skin and my hands still swelled up just from touching it. So, you know, nightshades early on were a really big trigger for me. Also, eggs, like you, Angie, those are the ones that I think people really want to be able to eat eggs because it makes it so much easier just to be able to, like, make some scrambled eggs in the morning and not have to have, like, you know, soup or meat patties. And, you know, it's something that your other family members are probably eating and they're more affordable. So I was just like, okay, get, get me on the egg train. Like I'm ready. Yeah. But I I found that when I ate them once I was fine, but then if I ate them again, I wasn't. And then if I ate them one more time, I was really not fine. So there seemed to be like a tolerance issue. And so even when I started reintroducing them probably a year in, I found that I could have them once or twice a month. And then after, you know, six or nine months, I would do them like once a week. And even now I find that, you know, I really only have them maybe once or twice a week. I try not to eat them very often because the symptom that I get from them is digestive upset. You know, I'll start getting diarrhea and I know that there's something going on in my mm-hmm. gut that that's telling me, you know, you're, you're doing too much of that. Um, A weird one that I was very surprised by was sesame seed. So going back to the nuts and seeds, some people are sensitive to things like that. I get really itchy when I have sesame. Soy, I get a rash on my forearms. And actually, I get a little bit of a rash when I have eggs that have been fed soy. So I had that same experience as Angie, where I reintroduced just regular eggs, because why not? And I started getting this rash and I was like, that's my soy rash. <laughs> like, right. Why am I getting that from an egg? So I started eating soy free eggs. And so that's what I started using in my trials. But over time, things have really shifted a lot for me. I go back and forth with foods. So like nightshades, three years in, I started tolerating a little bit like potatoes and then that cayenne pepper started to be kind of okay. But then I have been going through times of more stress or activity or not really getting a lot of sleep. And I notice that my tolerance to those foods go down when I don't take care of myself. So it's very in flux, you know, it ebbs and flows. And it's not cut and dry. That's like the beauty of the template, right? Like we can tighten up when we're in times of illness or stress and we need to kind of keep things more careful. And then, you know, when we're in a time where our health is really robust, we can kind of experiment more and eat a lot further outside of the elimination phase. Yeah, I think that's where really where balance comes in, like having a mindset towards really Having a diet that nourishes us and fuels our best health doesn't have to be one that is obsessive or restrictive or full of fear. 
walking that line, right, of food as medicine versus food as fear. And this is actually a hard one for a lot of folks in our community. And it takes time to learn it. I definitely came in with that food is fear mindset, like I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, having these anaphylactic reactions. But your life depended on it. Right, right. But as I healed, I recognized that I didn't need to live in that level of fear anymore. And I could open up a little bit and enjoy the healing, right? That's the whole point of this process, right? To have a a healthy, happy heart and mind and body. Yeah. So Angie, tell me a little bit about what your diet looks like now. What are the foods that, you know, we're almost five years in, like what are things that you've got on repeat that you're eating all the time? And what are things that you pretty consistently avoid? I've never had much success yet um, with the nightshades outside of white potatoes, so I still don't eat tomatoes or uh, peppers or any of the spices that kind of go along with them. I do eat white rice probably about once a week now. That was of the grains, the one that I felt was most acceptable to try to bring back in. I eat a lot of fish and shellfish and different kinds of meats, uh, you know, grass-fed beef, pastured pork, some free-range chicken. Let's see, a lot of vegetables, a lot of different kinds of vegetables. Some of them are like really familiar vegetables that I've eaten my whole life. And, um, you know, there's lots of others that um, I've picked up along the way during this AIP process. I eat a little bit of fruit. My sweet taste buds have changed a lot. I think that's something that you and I have been kind of uh, recognizing and talking about recently, Mickey, you know, like how much uh, my affinity for sweet has changed um, over time. You know, things that previously I would have thought aren't sweet at all, like some of the fruits. Now I'm like, whoa, that's way too much sugar. So I don't include some of that stuff as often. That's kind of what my diet looks like now. How about you? Yeah, uh, we eat pretty, I would say pretty paleo. So most of the time we're eating grain-free, leaning towards AIP with some seed spices that I've been able to reintroduce. So pretty much everything but sesame. Uh, I can't do dairy. I can't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't even do ghee. That is a very rare, <laughs> a very rare intolerance that I've come across that, you know, maybe it'll never change for me. I don't know. But like I said before, I do eggs occasionally, but I usually reserve, I think of my eggs as like a special thing, not a daily thing. So if I want to bake some paleo muffins to take on a road trip, or if I'm traveling and, you know, staying with a family member, that's a really easy breakfast for them to feed me. I could try to reserve my more gray area foods like eggs for situations like that. I do eat white rice maybe once every week or two, maybe a little more traveling. And I've actually done pretty well with gluten-free grains besides oats, for some reason, though they do not agree with me. Beans and legumes, even when they're soaked and sprouted and traditionally prepared, which can be a lot easier for some people to digest, they just really mess up my digestive tract. So I don't really go there. And, you know, sometimes I'll be at a nice restaurant and they'll have something with like some lentils or something and I usually pick them out. Nightshades, I'm at a place where I'm tolerating a little bit more, but I'm not tolerating the raw whole nightshade. So like raw tomatoes, raw peppers, anything. And I think it's a quantity thing, right? When you're mm-hmm. eating tomatoes, it's like a lot of fiber and a lot of tomato. But if you're using cayenne pepper or paprika, it's kind of like a dusting of it. So I can handle a little bit. I can handle the potatoes 
just fine. So I think that's probably something that folks will notice, right, over time as they go through this process, that there are going to be some foods that they can bring back into their diet, but there will definitely be thresholds Mm -hmm, that work for mm -hmm. their body. And, you know, once they pass that threshold, it may not work. Another thing that you brought up, Mickey, that I think is really important for us to kind of hit on for our audience is that even if you share a diagnosis with somebody else and you've used the same healing process, what comes back into your diet, what works for you may not be what works for somebody else. So like we both have celiac disease, but I can do a little bit of dairy and you can't, and you can do a little bit of nightshades and I can't. Yeah. And I mean, we've been at it this about the same amount of time. So right. it, it may not even be an element of time. You know, it is what it is. It's but, bio-individuality, um, right? Yeah. But, you know, those other things that, you know, everyone really gets eager to reintroduce. So caffeine, I'm intolerant to caffeine. <laughs> we don't, we're not friends anymore. I think um, eight years or whatever in a coffee shop kind of messed me up for that one. And alcohol, you know, I'm okay if I stay with like one glass and I drink it really slow and I have like two glasses of water, but I really don't do well with alcohol and I do not do well with sugar. So, you know, a little fruit here and there is fine, but Um, you know, like I've been recipe testing a cake and I just, I got to figure out who in my family can take that off my hands because it just really makes me feel horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Too much sugar. Yeah. You brought up the alcohol. I, I can do maybe like two glasses of wine in an evening with, you know, a meal and water in between and whatever. If I go beyond that, guaranteed, I will wake up shaking with a sugar, a blood sugar crash in the middle of the night. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So definitely that's changed very dramatically from my former party girl ways. (laughs) Or maybe your interpretation of your symptoms after. Right, (laughs) right, right. Because that's kind of what I realized too with alcohol. Like I used to drink not a ton, but I definitely drank more than one drink a night. And I pretty regularly remember feeling sick even before I was feeling like I was having fun. And that should have been a red flag for me that, oh, maybe alcohol doesn't actually work for me. You guys, we have some homework for you. You can check out the Which Way Will Work For Me questionnaire in chapter three of our book to find out if you are most likely to thrive with a cold turkey approach or a slow and steady approach to the elimination diet, kind of like the differences that Mickey and I described in our own transitioning. Once you find out which way is ideal for you, you can check out the additional guides to making those transitions best fit your lifestyle needs. Yeah, we wanna leave you with this piece How we feel our bodies provides the foundation for success and healing. Just as pouring the wrong kind of fuel into the gas tank of a car destroys it, eating the wrong foods and eating these things that are causing inflammation and really impairing our body's ability to heal itself is going to cause a problem. So taking this nourish step is likely to be one of the most powerful things that you do in your journey and There are a lot of different ways you can approach it. It is not one size fits all, but if you do your homework to just kind of figure out what works best for you and really be in tune with your body and your healing mission, you're going to be fine. It's going to be great. So take care and we will see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. 
We're honored to have you as a listener, and we hope that you've gained some useful information. You can learn more about the topic we explored today. It's covered in detail in our book, The Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, along with handy self-assessments, checklists, and other useful resources to put your plan into action. Pick up a copy today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes as this helps others find us. You can also connect with us through our blog, autoimmune-paleo.com, and with the community by using the hashtag autoimmunewellness. wellness.